Okay, so how's that? Yeah, it's okay. Well, okay isn't good enough. Was it, was it better before? I can't remember now. Okay. I'm recording this so we can use this as the intro. Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. G'day. Welcome to Living the Dream podcast. I'm your co-host, John, at John Puccini. It's been a long time since you've heard me on this show, um, but I'm really happy to be back with Mr. David Eden. How are you? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm really happy, I'm... That, I'm really happy that you're back. Oh, I think you. you've been missed. Yeah, I don't know. Every time I talk to people about this show, they're always like, oh, that Dave Eden, mate. You know, I really like him. And, you know, I feel like I'm not getting enough pod love, but that's fine. We that's just, tough. We live with it. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm happy just being, you know, the, the, the second wheel here. You know? Oh, uh, come on. I can do it. I can come do on. it. Take it for the, for the people. You know? no, no one likes a podcast to be a unicycle. No. The least no. popular form of, of cycle-based transport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I have, like... This ins- oh my god, there was this insane thing where I was at the South Bank Parklands the other day, like, and there was a guy with like full like face, full like evil clown face mask, riding a unicycle with punching gloves on, just punching as he drove past. I feel like he personified 2018 somehow. Um, there was a real something there. I don't know. It was it was intense. I wanted him arrested, and I don't even like the police. Oh man, that's tough. It yeah. was. You didn't freak out the kid that much, so, you know. Well, that's good. That's good. That is good. So, like, it's good to have you here, John. Um, yeah. It's like I've missed you mm. very much so, but well, you've, you've been really busy, I think, too. So yeah, how's, cool. how was 2018 for you? Mm, look, I mean, 2018 was all right for me personally because, you know, I read a book, which I had to do, and got a ongoing academic job which is also great but then as i put in a tweet recently the world also seems to be ending so how can we you know we gauge and um reflect on our personal successes um in the context of so much resolutely shit stuff Mm. kind of going on but also you know sparks of hope and and we can uh we can definitely talk about those though i think a lot of them are more international than than here but um, I think. Well, what about you, Dave? Yeah, you look, like, like, inter- like it's interesting. Like, um, you know, the the grind of of white collar public sector work is, you know, is uh, well paid conditions, but you know, much mm. alienation. Like personally, yep. it was really great. Like, I spent a lot of time with my family, and I've started having a lot more fun, and you know, um, I've been drinking more, like in a positive Oof. way. That that's that <laughs> sounds bad, um, but I had a, my had my fortieth birthday and had lots of friends yeah, and comrades awesome. from uh, all around the country came up and um sang the international for your birthday they it did very, it was, it was, very it was, real it was very real, real times it's really lovely but um mm. i've also been felt really kind of frustrated in some ways because it's i think like i felt like this year like it wasn't a very productive year for me in terms of writing like i did mm. a fair amount of podcasts i did like one serious post on my with sober senses 
um, mm. blog about wages, but that's probably the smallest amount of po- like serious posts that I've done since I started that blog. Mm. And even on the word from Struggle Street, like I felt like I probably started like 10 to 12 pieces that I got a couple of mm. thousand words in. And I'm like, oh, th- th- there's no point going, you know, if yeah. that makes sense. Like Things are moving really quickly. Like well, it was kind of hard to to pin down any particular thing and like stick with it long enough I felt to really kind of reflect on it properly. Yeah, see I and I also I felt I felt like an extra level of frustration because I thought there were like things happening both in Australia and internationally that I thought like deserved real consideration, but I couldn't see that theory kind of happening anywhere. Like so like to give mm. you an example, um, John, it's like you know, like 20 years ago, I think during the ultra-globalisation movement, there was a real a- an attempt amongst radicals to try to understand global political economy and like a mm. real attention towards, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions, towards trade deals and these kind of things. And mm. like this was a year where I think, you know, the Trump administration in the United States in some ways really like blew up the manual um, Mm. really broke with what is the dominant approach by engaging in these kind of like quite protectionist and um, maybe even mercantilist, if you want to use that word, um, approaches mm. to trade, like left NAFTA, right? Like I, I, mm. it, was, it was kind of yeah. interesting because one of the things I was thinking is, you know, like 1st of January is the 25th anniversary of the Zapatista uprising. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, obviously the Zapatistas existed in a clandestine form for a considerable period of time before that. But, it, you know, they it was on the 1st of January 1994 that they emerged and, and took over a couple of towns and announced themselves and one of the reasons they did this was because you know the first of january was also the day that the north american free trade agreement uh came into force and particularly part of that north of, of nafta was uh a re- enforced a removal in the mexican constitution which would have then allowed the privatization of communal land you know mm, but what's really interesting yeah. is that 2018 was the year that trump ended nafta yeah you know and it's been replaced by another agreement but I, and I've forgotten the initials. It's now called the US-Mexico-Canada Agreement or something like that. Mm, yep. But it's almost like there's no commentary in the mainstream media and almost no com- – like I can't see any serious radical analysis of this, which is I think is really fascinating because, mm. you know, for a long period of time, you know, during the high neoliberal period, there was this understanding that these trade deals were a way of depoliticizing economic decision making and enforcing mm. what people call neoliberalism so mm. the break with that, that that seems like kind of radically important to try to understand that or you know just sticking on on trump you know like he's now in a in a war of words with um the federal reserve around monetary policy like mm. the independence of central banks another plank of high neoliberalism right so mm. for me it was like this stuff is is happening these transformations are going on but most of the commentary is just like ah, oh, he's orange and he's rude yeah they get caught up in that yeah like the only time i even really heard about the um this new deal was was Trump's hilarious tweet of like a week ago where he said that because they'd signed onto this new acronym deal that Mexico would be paying for the wall. Which by they're like not America right? doing better off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's just trying to like, you know, make um he's trying to make himself feel better or whatever. But like, yeah, like there's no real like yeah, as you said, everyone is kind of caught up in this sort of Trump the norm breaker. Mm. 
you know, when it's like the norms are actually like bad, like not to say that he's replacing the norms with anything, with any better norms, but you know, like if you're sitting from a position that says that, you know, you're breaking with the norms of, um, of economics or the norms of political civility, you know, you have to acknowledge that those norms exist within the, within a, within a system, right? That yeah. structures their meanings in a, you know, you know, way that furthers oppression, right? Totally. And it also seems to be like trying to get a handle of this would be trying to understand actually what's happening in capitalism, right? Yeah. Like, well, so, so it's yeah. like, like, you know, the very fact, like, you know, I feel like, and I've, I've thought this for a while, like even though, you know, that so many radicals want to have a systematic analysis, we too readily like give individual politicians, Howard, Bush, Trump, this kind of world-shaking capacities. Mm. But mm. like the, the US is doing this because of something that's going on, right? Like, you know, trying yeah. to understand this new Trump approach to global trade is part of the attempt to understand what's happening in the global dynamics of capitalism so like you know i think for me part of the the frustration of the disappearance of this analysis is because i actually think you know does that mean we we are still seriously thinking about what's happening about Mm. to capitalism in 2018 2019 or are we back in you know this what's been like a long time bugbear for me which Mm. is this explaining the world through um bad people or bad and bad ideas mm. i'm not sure whether this is a tying whether this is just reproducing those faults but there was a really good article by Stephen wertheim which was about neoconservatism and the similarities actually in the sort of stuff that trump's doing to kind of the period of neo of, of, of that sort of you know um, congress of what was it the congress of american prosperity or the new american future thing those people and the similarities that he has there, both in terms of kind of thinking about the U.S.'s military role in a new way, but also like a lot of those people were really opposed to these big trade deals. Mm. A lot of the neocons were opposed to those big trade deals. They're opposed to things like the EU. They're opposed. They wanted bilateral deals, right? So you know the idea that he's breaking necessarily with the logic of kind of the Republican Party necessarily. You know that we can link that article because I think it's really interesting to think about from that perspective as well. But yeah, I mean, in global capital terms as well, obviously, you know, you can't not talk about China for like two seconds. Yeah. Which yeah. obviously lingers over these discussions. Yeah, totally, totally. So, so I guess that's what, like, I think we'll get into some of this stuff more more substantially and, you know, like mm. trying to get an understanding of what, what's going on. Mm. But I think this has been the frustration. And I think um, mm. there's other things we can talk about, about too is being trying to like... Um, capture what's going on with what we might call like the institutional turn you know Mm. that like suddenly there's more discussion about and we've you know we've had this over the last couple of years you know we've participated in the discussion about um Mm. you know universal basic income but Mm. there's there seems to be more of a kind of like policy wonkish turn Mm. um amongst friends and comrades partly driven by the successes apparent successes of the of the radical social democratic project you know um, mm, yeah. you know the uh, you know so so that that's been like and it's trying to get like a serious kind of analysis about that so i think like i found that really frustrating that like i just haven't had the time to do this kind of work systemically mm. so that that's been um part of like i've so hopefully in 2019, I'm going to try to be a little bit more kind of like focused and like mm. not get caught up in just writing thousands of words that 
never see the light of day yeah. you know you just because you should just do twitter threads yeah i don't i don't know if i can do that either like i get caught up on things that's like <laughs> oh you know i, I you know ideology all right you know yeah, we used yeah. to have an ideology reading group i'm like oh okay. so i need to you know have a point about this and i go off and i read marx and i go read altazir i'm like oh now, now i have to read two books by jacques i'm like why the fuck am i doing this you know like <laughs> <laughs> you know like in, in like no one needs an, another bit of writing that just goes through theories mm. of ideology you know like and but it's sometimes do it's we though dave it seems like we never you know we never get to anyone actually using that word properly <laughs> well i kind of but then then it is i kind of think we do at the same time right yeah, yeah, you know yeah, like yeah. No, like yeah. actually thinking like thinking concretely about like why a certain society produces certain kinds of ideas yeah, um, yeah. including its dissident ideas is probably useful to do right. which might kind of actually bring us to to like an official start point, mm. Um, mm. you know, you you announced um, these that we were going to record this show on on Twitter, um, and mm. people were kind of like, "Oh well, look, what about what's happening in St Kilda? Is that a kind mm. of starting point?" So, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's been something that um, that I've we've all been paying a bit of attention to over the last last few days and something we've come back to quite a bit um in the show i think and we've often been quite kind of dismissive um probably rightly so of the far right and its actual capacity to mobilize or its actual representing of any real social base but that a hundred of them you know can can show up um, along with a you know a, a strange fly in queensland senator um you know it does seem is, is a real threat like to the people who live in that area and to like new migrant communities who are being targeted by these people. And we can't ignore that just because our political analysis says, you know, that these people are, you know, lacking in a social base and that, you know, they're probably not going to amount to very much, which is true. But, you know, like, I think it's hit a point now where, you know, certainly in the political sphere of discussion, these people are occupying a place probably above what they deserve. And we need to engage with that and shut them down and, you know, make sure that if there are people out there who are questioning sort of the political class's ineptitude and the political class's failings and they aren't being drawn in the direction of these direction of the of the of the far right. Mm. So it's like, you know, obviously we're in Brisbane, we're thousands of yeah. kilometers away from St Kilda. So for those people mm. going, what are you talking about? There was um, the, there was a, a fascist rally that happened yesterday with a counter-protest. Um, this fascist rally was kind of focused on, I guess, the the panic, African the man, gang problem. Yeah, the manufactured, yeah, the manufactured <clears throat> panic around this idea that there's some kind of crime wave in Melbourne based on gangs of young African African men, mm. and then there was a counter demonstration against this. You know, my understanding of what went on is really drawing on um, the kind of on the on the ground often Twitter expressed um, radical journalism of um, Slack Bastard, who, mm. you know, is undoubtedly the definitive blog of, like, uh, fascist watching um, mm. that happens in in, Austra uh, in Australia. And also uh, Kieran Bennett, who's an anarchist mm. comrade. We've had him on, on the show before, who, you know, is a really, I feel, mm. is a really brave individual who's willing to kind of, like, um, you know, tweets in public, <laughs> on their yeah, yeah, own well, name, mm. you know, calling these fuckers out. And both mm. of them really had a reading that, like, it was a good day for the far right. So, mm, you yeah. know, whilst they were only able to mobilise 100 or so people, um, 
it seemed like the anti-fascist response was quite small. Yeah. Um, the police, again, more sympathetically sympathetic to the fascists and the anti-fascists. But what seemed mm-hmm. to be really interesting to me was like it seemed to be bringing together... Obviously, these relationships already existed, but if we were to think of the far right in Australia as an ecology, you've got, mm. uh, is it like Neil Erickson? Yeah. Who's, who's this kind of like self-styled Facebook far right provocateur. Mm. Um, then Blair Cottrell, who basically now, you know, has had a couple of different organisations, but basically, you know, runs a kind of fight club lad society like this organization mm. called the lad society which is kind of a fight club for fascist losers and mm. then fraser anning who was a one nation candidate then got kicked out of one nation after he was elected to the senate then was in canada's mm. australia party for a while then was kicked out of that and is now really kind of like um styling themselves in quite you know in in white supremacist politics all mm. coalescing in this space, right? Like, mm. it's a number... And I think that it's, it's really worth, like, rather, you know, thinking about, like, what these guys are, um, mm. how they fit together, and how it actually, like... And I, this is one of the reasons I actually wanted to have a chat with you about this, generally, because so mm. much of your historical work has looked at, um, you know, I guess, like, the existence of the white Australia policy in Australia. Mm. But, like... I, I always like struggle over trying to really understand how racism operates in Australia. Mm. Like for me, up, so like when did the white Australia policy actually end? Yeah, that's in. I mean, there's a lot of ways of thinking about that. I mean, in theory, the legislation that enabled the white Australia policy being the Immigration Restriction Act was replaced in 1958 by Menzies, by the Migration Act, and that removed things like the dictation test the infamous dictation test where people can only come into the country if they could speak not just English, but any language of the um, of the um, inspectors choosing. So if they could speak English and you didn't want them in, you just, you know, to get, make them speak Gaelic or something, you know, um, until they wouldn't be let in. Um, and there are other sorts of reforms. The most famous mm-hmm. um, moment is, you know, in 73 when... Um, when um, Whitlam removed, when Whit- Whitlam gets rid of it, and his immigration minister declares White Australia dead and buried, but is, is that Al Grasby? Much, yeah, Al Grasby, the best dressed Australian politician ever. You got to look look up pictures of him, an amazing individual. Um, but then, you know, so there's arguments by people like um, like um, Ghassan Haj, you know, which is like that, you know, obviously. It's far too easy to draw a line that says the white Australia ends in 73 and then multiculturalism kicks in. And then, you know, we have Australia as the, quote, multicultural success story of the world and all of these things. There's there's no, like, reason, there's no reasonable thing that happens there. People's ideas aren't necessarily transformed immediately, you know. What white is that white nationalism continues to be the central organizing force of Australian society beyond the white Australia policy's life. You know, like it continues to function um, as 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 um, as Hajj puts it, even on the left and the right, it's the ability of Australians to decide who comes to the country, and that the left even that the left can then make an argument that says, yeah, well, we should let this many people in, and we should be focusing on these people, is in itself a representation of white Australia, which is the capacity to control migration and to control people, and to do that on the basis of ethnicity, which. Very much, even though it's not on the paper, not not on paper anymore, 
is still very much a real thing. And the way that white Australia works in the imagination of these of the far right is interesting as well, because most of these people have no experience of what the white Australia policy meant either. Um, and it's really hard to pin down what people actually thought about the white Australia policy. Um, there's some really fascinating, I think you linked me to these, Dave, some really fascinating interviews from the 60s that the ABC did, that kind of vox pops of people asking them what they thought about the white Australia policy. It was an everyday thing. Everyone knew that it existed, but there was lots of questions about whether who it should exclude or how it should exclude. And, you know, is it, can we have white Australia in a world of decolonizing states and all these other things? But now I guess the, the right has this weird reading of white Australia, which is when everything was good seems to be their kind of reading of white Australia, if you know what I mean. Um, that, 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 that under white Australia, um, there was a proper hierarchies in place. And a lot of it for them seems to come down to like sexuality as well. And, you know, there's like some weird kind of sexuality politics going on there as well about, you know, white women and, you know, that under white Australia, white men breeded with white women and, you know, it was appropriate and all this other stuff. That gets mixed in with that but then also obviously there's been a bit about this is that at St Kilda there were several uh, Vietnamese Australians there as well which also complicates any reading I guess like there, were, there was a picture of Fraser Anning with two Vietnamese Australians one with like the South Vietnamese flag draped around his neck the old flag of South Vietnam mm. So, yes, that's a very roundabout way of thinking about that. Yeah, well, look, I, look, I, li I live in uh, one of those suburbs where, you know, the flag of uh, South Vietnam is, is flown mm, all yeah, the time, yeah. you know, and I, I mm. think uh, this is one of the other things that's interesting about, like, you know, the, the story of Australian multiculturalism is not politically mm. neutral either, you know, that no. there's also a history of political formation within migrant communities attached mm. to the complicated history that, has gone on um mm. you know both the cold war and then what's happened here so like yeah. you know one of the things that i always like there's, there's a couple of things that jump to mind when when you're talking about this and and one is of course like um how important the white australia policy was as the class deal between capital yeah, and labor yeah. you know that like the, the in australia like part of the way that capital was able to maintain social stability and like i'm really drawing on like um like the like people like Noel Ignatiev, how they talk about like whiteness in the US, mm -hmm. they say, you know, like it's not just enough that capital has to like exploit labor, but also it needs to maintain a social order that allows exploitation to actually occur. So mm -hmm. in the United States this took place by an internal colour bar that divided the population within the country. Um, mm. which, you know, and we know this theorisation which said, you know, like kind of white people in the US were included in this kind of psychological wage and mm. these other forms of privilege, even though they were exploited, uh, black Americans were not included in this and that's how it operates. But I think, mm. you know, in Australia, it, it works through the process. Historically, it's worked through the process of exclusion, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, the, a, a racialised border policy worked to maintain a short, a small labour market which yep. kept up um, the price of labour. And I think mm. the left feels really uncomfortable about that. But this is still kind of dominant trade union politics today. Yeah, no, definitely. They just try yeah. to, like, shear off the formal anti-racism, right? And this mm. was then tied with, um, with, with arbitration. The thing that mm -hmm. I find really difficult, of course, is, like, how do we understand, like, the disappearance of the word white, you know, that, that mm. like, you know, so, like, you know, oh, 
Like, I think Australia, like racism still exists in Australia, obviously. I think yeah. it's important to also account for the successes of anti-racism. Like, I think, yeah. like, in my head, and jump in if I'm wrong here, like, mm. up until the end of the white Australia policy, you had, like, formally racist ideology, um, you know, mm. formally racist policy, and a race, mm. racism exists in the social body. But I guess, like, in Australia now, you have formally anti-racist ideology, formally mm. anti-racist policy, but racism still exists. So, like, how do we kind of account... Like, I, I'm just not... I'm not just trying to be a mm. dick about this, because I, I, I think this helps us explain the kind of partly rebel chic that fascists have today. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily... Like, the thing about white Australia is that, you know, they were very careful about how they worded it. Like, there was never explicitly a... Like, there was nothing called the White Australia Policy. We all know that. You know, like, it was a nomenclature. It was something that was talked about in the media, that there was a White Australia Policy, but there was no actual policy to that effect. I mean, technically, all even the Immigration Restriction Act was neutral in its language. And I'll venture that the language we have now is also theoretically race-neutral rather than anti-racist, like the Racial Discrimination Act notwithstanding, which is, you know, constantly under attack and, and, and undermined. I wouldn't say that we necessarily have an anti-racist politics. I think we have, like, a kind of a politics now that says that, you know, race shouldn't matter, basically, and that we, we, we do not judge based on race. Whether that's an anti-racist politics, I think, is a different question. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I understand. That might just be a bit bit of a dickish kind of... Yeah, no, you know. no, I don't think so. I, like, for me, like, I guess for me, it's like I kind of hit a wall about these kind of things. Hmm. Um, because I guess, you know, like, you know what Fraser Anning or says, and definitely what Pauline Hanson says, is quite mild to what your standard Labour Party politician said in the 1960s, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I've always said, we've said this numerous times in the show, that One Nation represents a sort of um, a weird... Um, sort of zombie version of, of 1950s laborism mm. in, in, in a lot of ways, in opposition to free trade, in opposition to, um, you know, you know, in opposition to, to immigration and whatnot. But yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that, that compact. And there's a certain, you know, like, I don't want to buy into the whole white working class thing. No. Because I think, you know, obviously it's a myth. There's a lot of good, good, good stuff has been written recently that says, you know, that when we construct a white working class, you know, that that's just a rhetorical construction that we're doing that plays into the hands of our enemies here, you know. But but there are these there are these people out there who do feel like they've that they have not benefited from the last forty years of multicultural policy, which unfortunate for multicultural policy has also coincided with neoliberal policy. Yeah. Whether those two things are connected is a different question. But, you know, we can't discount the fact that, you know, that 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 people are, the wages haven't gone up since the seventies, and that multiculturalism, as a policy, mm. has been implemented from around that time, right? So people's experiences of their whatever, like whether yeah. whether people are experiencing wage losses, whether people are experiencing, you know, any number of things, or, or whether they are or not, whether this is just racism, whether this is just you know that these people feel like they no longer command the sort of authority that their white fathers did. Mm. Look, I, I would I would disagree on that technical point about like what wages has been in Australia since the seventies. I think you yeah. know, the wage story in, in Australia is unique mm-hmm. compared to um, the rest of the global north, if we're going to use that term. Mm. And I, I think you know one of the things I've been thinking about is, like, and we've talked about this a lot actually, is one of the mm. uniqueness of the Australian condition is that you know neoliberalism re, if we're going to use that term, you know, mm. uh, you know, did see the increasing um, in 
imposition of exploitation in Australia of, of labour, mm. you know, the share of income to capital grew, but it mm. was individually experienced as many households as actually is an expansion of wealth. Um, yeah. Because more people were working, more people were working longer, access to credit, um, mm. but but also because wages did go through period, periods of growth. But that, that correlation is really interesting. Like one of the things, you know, getting back to bad, but, um, I've been kind of um, involved, drawn into online, you know, how the yellow vest phenomena is playing out in Australia. Mm. And it, it's really throwing me like face to face with a lot of people that I would, I've coined a term, John. Mm, um, okay. Yes. Which is the cosmic right, uh, and so like the, this is like to describe, and this is a phenomena that you know I kind of noticed back in the Occupy days in Australia, where mm. there's been a kind of fusion between kind of hippie sensibilities and f- fascist politics or f- soft mm. some form of fascist politics. So if you ever pick up like a magazine like Nexus or New Dawn, so yeah. the uh, what you'll find is like you know an article on say crystal healing. Um, mm. You know, another article on like hidden alien civilization, and then mm. then another article by like the um, Russian-based fascist Dugan, or literally mm. um, the New Zealand Satanist Nazi Kerry Bolton, right? Like, and and mm. and, and it's, grab um, bag. Yeah, yeah it's it's it, <laughs> but it, it's quite it's, it's quite prevalent, right? Like, hey, mm. and um, one of the things that's <laughs> There's so many things that, that, like, it just blows my mind. Like, um, Keir Milburn, who uh, is based in the UK, is involved in Plan C on a Twitter exchange, or maybe a a Facebook Mm. exchange described it as, like, acid fascism, right? Yeah. You know, like, riffing off that acid Corbynism, acid communism. But one of the things that's Mm. really interesting, and you'll get a kick out of this, is, like, there's this kind of counter-history of... um, of globalization slash neoliberalism. So the explanation mm. of like why manufacturing decreases in um, Australia from the 70s, 80s, 90s and onwards is mm. they blame the um, new economic, new international economic order. Ooh. So it's, you know, so, so for like how I understand it is basically, you know, in the early 70s on the wave of national liberation and the like, um, in mm. the UN through organisations like UNCTAD in the UN, there were these statements. Right. Yeah. Was that, it's UNCTAD, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is UNCTAD. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. Yeah. Just enjoying this. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so in, in reality, what well, they got these statements up, which was basically saying, hey, you in the global north, we need a reorganization of trade, we need technological transfer, mm. and we need different forms of credit. And basically, yep. the, the global north kind of like signed off on this formally in the UN. Then well, perceived... they didn't oppose it. Res- yeah. So, I mean, it was hollow resolutions as they saw it. They saw it, it was easier to kind of not, not be involved, basically. It, it, the Lima decision in like, Peru mm. in 1973 or something like that. And then Caracas, they, de- they, then they de- proceeded to destroy it, right? So yeah, effect- yeah. effectively, as it wasn't implemented um, around the the side of this, there was all these dollars mm. that had gone into Washington, uh, Wall Street banks because of um, the, the um, fuel crisis in the early 70s and the high price of mm. petrodollars. These, yep. were, these were lent out to sympathetic states, ones that agreed to the north. And then in mm. the early 80s with the Volcker shock, these countries were thrown yep. into debt crisis right and then this fits into the picture of how this plays out in the north imposition of capitals capitalist discipline is the moving of manufacture to lots of these areas you know this is Mm. the the process of enclosure but in the kind of view of the cosmic right it's like the Lima Mm. declaration was carried out 
Ooh. You know, that yeah. like the, the UN is this kind of like globalist, um, you know, commie, yeah. probably there's some anti-Semitism in their organisation. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to see this because what people are trying to talk to about is like what is happening in capitalism in the last 40 years. And it's caught up in this kind of like, you know, like I'm trying to talk about conspiracy theories without using the term conspiracy theory. Like, yeah. it's caught up in in this narrative, uh, and then you, what you also find is there's thrown in like you know white genocide shit and lots of transphobia. Mm. But it's amazing yep. to see because it's like you know like the right has always been fucking wacky in Australia, but yeah. this is happening in spaces where I think you know 20 years ago these people would have been reading Hackham Bay or or Bookchin mm. or you know some kind of Starhawk you know some kind of green anarchisty kind yeah. of voice you know but but now it's like it's this hybrid of like hippie sensibilities and fascist politics and yeah that's it's just so weird like and mm. it's you know going back to that kind of comment before about ideology it's like mm. you know like how do you you can't just go okay there's this linear social phenomena and that's leading to these ideas but there's like there's got to be something about like what's happening materially and historically in our s- societies that mean that when people are looking around, it's mm. this kind of like mixture of the fantastical defense of the nation state, weird ass shit that is mm. what's pulling people in. May- maybe our listeners can talk on Twitter if they- they've got some thoughts about why this is the case. Yeah, no, that's really weird to think, you know, that the far right are the only people who remember the new international economic order. It's <laughs> like a small number of academics who are interested in it. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, the, it's weird because, yeah, like in the way the new international economic order was arguing for, you know, the realisation of the liberal promise, which was, you know, that, that we would have free trade. Mm. A real free trade is what they were really arguing for, is, you know, that like, yes, let's have free trade. That means that you lower your tariff laws. That means that you distribute technology to us. That means we have a real equality and a real real freedom in which trade should function. And in a way, then, what the what the new right did in the 1980s was say, oh, okay, well, we'll give you we'll give you that. You need to lower all your tariff laws as well. And, you know? I, and, and they I, kind of reverse that on them, which is, you know, that's probably another discussion for another podcast. But, but it kind of goes back to what we were talking about like at the beginning of the episode, which is, you know, like in the 80s when people coined this term the Washington Consensus, Mm. you know, by then there's this very much approach that there is one set of trade rules, one set of policy, and that they need to be enforced by a whole series of like permanent, you know, whether it's through an IMF structural adjustment program, whether it's through what becomes Mm. by the end of the 90s the World Trade Organization, is this, Mm. you know, this unified structure of... Um, guidelines, laws that are to some level enforceable on a global level that mm. will depoliticize all these questions, you know, and yeah. like, and that's what you know, that's what kind of fell apart in two thousand eighteen. Um, you know, like mm. it's it's pretty like we've talked a fair bit on this show. Like, I'm really influenced by an argument that like um, endnotes made i think it's probably about five years ago if if not longer that mm. p- after the 2007 2008 outbreak of the crisis we're now in this thing called the holding pattern right mm. we and that that holding pattern is you know that a combination of bit of austerity then um unorthodox economic policy then quantitative easing then stimulus like in places in china like was able to kind of like keep um 
capitalism from falling apart, but like a plane in a holding pattern, it was kind of in a slow descent. And every year or every time we get together and we're like, what's going on? There's the same kind of concerns coming out of the global organisations. You know, growth is happening, but it's getting weak. And the co- and it's it's kept mm. up by all this kind of cheap money, but the offside of that cheap money are these huge bubbles of debt. You know, so it's like that has that that has stayed right. Like, and it, we, what we are seeing is a lot of vo- volatility in financial markets, and that's because they kind of obtusely in a mystified form express these concerns of what's going on in the rest of the economy. But mm. what is noticeably different is like different states attempting different strategies to deal with this solution, and. The thing you'd definitely say about Trumpism, which, you know, like how I understand it, wants to do a couple of different things. So maintain or increase government spending and uh, reduce uh, taxation and then also impose as much as possible, you know, trade policy to benefit capital accumulation within the US. So it's attempt to kind of supercharge investment happening in the US. And it has mm. a number of interesting kind of knock-ons in that, like, okay, this will have a negative impact on China, but also as it, like, pushes up the uh, the value of the US dollar because suddenly people are going, oh, fuck, man, all this stuff's going on in the US. We need to buy more US dollars. It means all mm. those other countries, you know, because the debt bubble's so fucking big, means mm. everyone else's debt is harder to pay because most of it's in US dollars, right? Yeah, and, wow. And, mm. and so, like, that's really interesting because, you know, I think this is you know, the, the U.S., an element of the U.S. state going going from the, you know, since I guess the end of the Second World War where the, you know, the U.S. Mm. state saw itself as the guardian of capital globally on a whole mm. to being like, no, we are the guardian of capital accumulation in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm this article I mentioned earlier is interesting on this because I don't know whether, like, I, I, I still think that, Trump ascribes to that post-war understanding of American hegemony, certainly military, and really, I think, economic hegemony. I think it's just a different way of doing it. I think that he just sees it through more of a bilateral approach than a multilateral approach, and sees it as more national, sees it as, sees economics, economic policy through a more nationalistic frame. I don't I think that's necessarily something that's just shared by him. Like, at least look at Britain, right? Just look at look at Brexit. Look at the Brexiteers there, who also are all about similar ideas, right? Like they want to. Like I, um, I don't know. Does that make sense? I, I think it does, and I, I think the other thing is it's like you know, it's also the failure of those those you know maybe like maybe. Like I can't even pay attention to the World Trade Organization anymore because nothing fucking happens has happened in it for a decade. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost stillborn, you could say. Like, it was 1995 to, like, what, 2008 that people listened to it? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even, like, it just, just caught, like, it, 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 ha- it hasn't worked out. Um, I don't even know what's happening on the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, anymore. What, oh, yeah. what, we, what we should do is get someone who knows to talk about, <laughs> I guess, um, yeah. like the, the Chinese strategy. You know, there's lots of talk about, like, the, mm. you know, the infrastructure expenditure around the world is the one belt. Yeah, yeah, one, the one, one belt, one road. One belt, one road. Yeah. You know, like, that would be quite interesting to talk about too. You know, like, yeah. so um, maybe this year one of the things we can do is um, talk to some of our friends who are in the know about, mm-hmm. like, capital accumulation in China and get get a sense of this. But there is certainly the idea that, 
you know, um, even before crisis emerges again, there's multiple um, kind of strategies mm. that, like, there, there's, a, there's a break, right? Um, mm. And it does, like, and it's hard to see that, like, it does seem that, like, the right and populist right forces are doing better at articulating that break, at least on a state level, than any radical mm. forces are. And I, I guess why that kind of causes quite, like, a bit of anxiety, you know, when you have, yeah. like, the Bolsonaro winning the election in Brazil, that's kind of panic-raising at some level. And I guess mm. what we haven't mentioned, you know, you mentioned, like, the world's fucking ending. Like, you know, we yeah, do yeah. know from the IPCC report, which I didn't read, um, mm. you know, that, like, this really small window, like... No, it's, that's wrong, isn't it? Like, what we do know is that dramatic tr- impacts of climate change mm. are happening and are going to happen. And, you know, the idea that this stuff can be delayed or put off, it's more like how are we going to live it? You know, the pub- the, yeah. the publication no, right. the publication salvage in its, like, classic, you know, um, high Marxian depressed style... Um, it, like it's, China evil, yeah. China yeah, and Richard sake. Seymour, you know, like, um, <laughs> like it, that. that like, if people don't read Salvage. It's a very fancy publication, and it always comes with a little kind of like pamphlet where they've got their general statement about what's going on. And like, I think the last line of their la- most recent statement is, "The world cannot be saved, but perhaps some of it can be salvaged." Mm. Um, you know, or like. While we're talking about publications, I just got a copy of, um, I guess, Ultra Left Jacobin, which is called Commune. Yeah. This new, uh, and, yes. you know, so and it's, it's really interesting publication, and it's got an article in it um, about disaster communism, um, which you know, like what friend of the show Nick, Nick Southall is, has been one of the people talking about this idea, and you know, and it's really trying to think through what those, you know, like how, like how do you have a kind of radical, um, you know, anti-capitalist communist. Um, mm-hmm politics when we know we're going to have all these like fucking huge and disastrous effects from climate change yeah no that's right that's really good um while we're, while we're giving our readers our listeners things to read or listen to um the dig on did a really good interview with kate aronoff about um climate change policy about the green new deal which is something we probably shouldn't talk about in depth but like and just thinking about like you said like the world is going to change how can we live with it is that she wrote this kind of utopian piece sort of thinking about what would like like a state-based socialism look like basically after you know climate change and reflecting on you know what would a green the green new deal look like for all of the failings of that Cool. Have that possibility. It's something for readers, um, something for listeners to enjoy. I reckon, like we can get there in this chat to talk about some of this stuff more broadly. But maybe what we should mm. pull back to after not solving um, how to think about the mm. far right in Australia yeah. Yeah. Um, is to think about um, maybe like what happened in two thousand eighteen. Really interestingly, was like the kind mm. of um, continual malfunction and explosion of the coalition federal government. Yes, you know, and an energy, the the inability to develop energy policy was part of that explosion. Mm. So John, what the fuck went on? Yeah, well, that's a big, that's a very big question. Um, they have a, you know, they're having a civil war around energy policy, basically. Like, there's no rhyme or reason to a lot of it. Like Abbott has his particular reading, like they're all fighting over the NEG, which is a hilarious acronym, the National Energy Guarantee. I think I spent like pretty much the whole year fighting about that. I don't think it's going to see the light of day in any in any real sense. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the whole thing seems to be fighting over a dead form of energy, that being coal, and probably the pinnacle of it was that great video where that cop who was running for like a for like a marginal Victorian seat in the Victorian state election, and he started the interview being like, yeah, we need to, you know, if we're elected in Victoria, we're going to, you know, we're going to... We're going to help the market. We're going to we're going to help the market to develop the most, um, and the most you know cost efficient, the most energy efficient sort of way that we can um, build up baseload power. And then 90 seconds later, he was like, "We're going to give a lot of money to the coal industry so they can build a new coal plant, and we're going to make them do it." Yeah. And it was like within the space of 90 seconds. Yeah, so it's an incredible. These are these are incredible people uh, doing incredible mental gymnastics. Yeah, look, look, it's like some of the stuff is just amazing. So it's like, what's the current energy minister? Is it Alan Trudge? Is that his name? That sounds believable. Yeah, let's just go with that. Yeah, uh, you know, towards the end of the year, like it was basically his argument was to like what he was attempting to do was to form a cartel amongst power companies to mm. set power prices lower. So, yeah. you know, like taking a step back. Like what? What's the, what's the contradiction here, right? Like obviously, yeah. um, for capital accumulation, uh, power is crucial, right? So like, mm. it's really crucial for the reproduction of ordinary people, the working class, yep. right? And it's real, yep. really crucial for uh, production to work, and it's really crucial mm. for all the infrastructure that makes everything move around to work. So therefore, you know, what, what do you need? You need reliability and price suddenly becomes an issue. And of course, since it's mm. organised through private firms, you know, they have to be profitable. Like, I, I, this year will definitely be the year I write on power prices, right? I, I wrote a thing about a year ago for uh, on George Kofensis's, uh, who's from the Midnight Notes Collective, like his work mm. on energy, and I did some work, like, linking it to what Australia, and I, I need to really flesh it out, but... Um, so basically my, my understanding is like um, the challenge of renewable energy is so in Australia you have all these different power, private power providers and they kind of sell in to this kind of yeah. like this market on, on small increments, you know, like every – so the main organisation, uh, main body that buys power says we need X amount of power in the next five minutes and all the different companies make bids. And, mm -hmm. you know, basically, like, they, the company takes the – the central body takes the lowest bid and then mm -hmm. the next one and the next one and the next one. So, like, what you have with renewable energy is you have – the input costs are so low mm -hmm. that after you um, have built the thing, you can basically sell energy at next to nothing, which yeah. makes um, coal – Production, yeah, I guess it's no, no longer financially viable. Ridiculous. But yeah. so you have this weird situation that as capital is leaving, um, like mm. the coal production, it's not going into renewables fast enough, or mm. it, so it acts like cheaper prices are actually creating a shortage, which then leads to a price spike. So like it seems to mm. be, you know, the government strategy is then will, and, and the other thing that's really interesting too, and is worth talking about, is like what would make. Um, these plants more viable is if they had cheaper access to gas, right? Mm. And there's a lot of gas that is produced in Australia, but a whole bunch of it has already been committed for international markets. But also, which I think is really important and really exciting, is that fracking has been effectively shut down in lots of Australia. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah, and that's a big central point of that, and they whinge about it. But the other great thing which I heard sometime during this year was Scott Scott Morrison saying that he was gonna make 
the companies who are selling gas to China not do that and instead sell it to Australia. Which so is, speaking of your populist nation first economic policies, which are not at all Trumpian, but here we are, right? Yeah, am- amazing, right? Like, mm. um, and and so I, I think this like con- conundrum, like which will be a problem, like, and I, I don't think it, which will be a problem for any capitalist government, mm. has like th- read through a kind of like culture war lens, mm. like smash the coalition apart right and mm. I, I would say as well going off our shows we've done with with simon mm. that partly what's playing out here is a instability within the political right as well because of the victory of the plebiscite a year and a half yeah. ago yeah that, you know and this is creating some kind of like like the, there was an assumed conservative base in australia and it doesn't exist anymore mm. You know, no. so this is all being played out. I think what that means in 2019 is that we'll see, like, a thumping election of the ALP government. Yeah. No, that, that's that's true. Um, and never has a party not deserved to be elected Look, as much a, as the Australian Labor Party in, in, in late 2018, right? Yeah, totally. And also, like, the other thing that's going to be really difficult is, like, the level of myth-making this is going to lead to. Mm. Like... I think, you know, we've um, we've had a couple of, you know, we had a friend and comrade who wrote a small report about uh, a Change the Rules campaign's delegate meeting. Yeah. And the, the, like, there's going, like, the victory of the Labor Party, we're going to have this narrative which is basically, like, and this is because of the power of the Change the Rules campaign and this shows that things are healthy within trade unions in Australia and also, you know, some idea that the Labor Party has this project now to carry out the Change the Rules politics. And I think, like, um, it's the, the Change the Rules experience, this is, I'll put my cards on the table, I think has been incredibly mixed and geographically mm-hmm. patchy in Australia. Like, it seems yeah. to be that there are big mobilisations in Melbourne, though I think the numbers at the rallies were overestimated, Tweet angrily mm. at me if you want to. Um, in in other major cities, it's had very small mobilisations of people. And I would generally mm. say, like when we did our May Day show, that there's been mm. very little resonance outside of the trade union faithful. I think the issue of yeah. wages in Australia and the stagnation of wages in Australia is a real fucking issue. Yes. And I, there's also very little um, that is in ALP policy that should be celebrated and like a a good friend um i I won't name them now because they work as a trade union bureaucrat like uh one of the things they they raised with me is like there's actually very little analysis from radicals actually about the deep network interrelationship between the alp and the trade unions right so we often Mm. assume that they're separate organizations but the alp factions are kind of spread out already within the trade unions yeah, you know, no, so, right. so yeah. it's not it's not even like you know that the trade unions come up with something like particularly kind of radical and then the ALP shits on it. Like the ALP is already operating within those trade unions, and like the level of democracy mm. within the trade unions is incredibly low, and the level of democracy in the Change the Rules campaign is non-existent. Yes, no, that's right. I mean, like you know, the Labor Party is the party of the trade union movement, unlike the other way. You you know. Un- like it wasn't a party that then created a bunch of trade unions to re- represent it. It's very much the other way around. And the, let the, the union movement has always had a huge amount of say over the in the Australian Labor Party. It's only been in the last few decades that Labor's even tried to pretend that's not the case. Like it was inconceivable for like 
you know, Bob Hawke to say, you know, that the, the, the Labour Party was independent of the trade unions. Yeah. Like, how could he say that <laughs> from his position? You know, like, it's 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 laughable. But I mean, just looking at, you know, the outcomes of the of the of the conference, you know, where, you know, obviously, you know, like there's small wins here and there. There's pushes for like enterprise, you know, they want to break break with, um, you know, they, they want to they want to break with the model that they've had for several decades now of, of enterprise bargaining. That's not working. They want, you know, they want um, industry level bargaining. There's pushes in that direction. There's stuff about and um, workplace manslaughter, which is positive. But overall, like, you know, they're not talking about refugees. They're not talking about um, New Start, raising New Start. They're not talking about any of the significant progressive policy issues that might actually be able to get people moving and get people, you know, wanting to go out there and vote Labour rather than you know, the Liberals just losing because they're absolute shit stands who couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery. Mm. So there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things I want to talk about with this, John, and we might actually hit a point of divergence. I think. Um, around it too is like i think there there were two interesting documents that did come out of the trade union milieu one is this big policy document that seemed to drop out of nowhere then no one i think i was probably the only person who wasn't a paid official to read um Mm. which was called jobs you can count on something like that which was like this like absurd keynesian fantasy and it was like basically My this favorite idea. type of fantasy. Oh, well, but it, but I think I think this is actually really fucking dangerous, right? Like I think yeah. one of the illusions of the moment is the idea that okay, you know, we'll get some. And when we talk about like Corbynism or something like that, it's a similar mm. illusion that you know, mm. like good policy through the state can suddenly make the state intervene in the economy in a way um, that makes mm. capitalism no longer capitalism. You know, mm. you know, you can have like it's like when you have people saying, "Oh, you know, what we need is the demand for, you know, functional full employment." So not, you know, the, mm. what it currently is, which is, um, you know, five five percent unemployment is considered full employment, but real full, um, you know, full employment. You, if that happened, you'd actually jam capital accumulation because you, mm. you'd reduce the pool of people to hire for capital to expand and you'd undermine discipline within the working class, which is exactly yeah. what's happened in nine, in the 60s, right? One of the reasons yeah, we had the right. waves yeah. of revolt, yeah. like, which is why unemployment was reimposed. It, you cannot have, like, like it's, it's, a, it's utopian in the sense that it assumes you can have capitalism that isn't capitalist. And then there's another mm. document um, which a failed ALP campaign um, candidate put out and it's being backed by the CFMMEU, which is called Goodbye Neoliberalism, which I've just started to read, which Mm. is a similar kind of thing, you know, which is, you know, really this Mm. idea of, like, the way that you change the world is good policy. And, Mm. like, for me, I think this is a mystification that is now bigger than just the ALP types, you know, like... Mm. um, part of like the idea that there's kind of viable electoral projects now is really like the return of the radical policy wonk Mm. you know that it's not the class in action that transforms society it's good policy if that makes sense and i should Mm. also tell listeners at, at this point um that we will do a future show looking at kind of some of the debates around the ALP in more detail following a uh, blistering article written (laughs) by John Pacini. Yes, well, hopefully coming to you soon uh, from a reputable source. Yeah. uh, uh, We'll we'll be keeping you posted. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Because I I guess that's... um, 
you know, like one of the things we are going to see in 2019 is like friends and comrades um, of the show are going to be involved, you know, around the South um, Brisbane Greens in a federal election attempt. Mm. You know, so this is really the kind of, you know, the continuation of, of people experimenting with electoral forms as part of um, mm. a radical strategy. And th- there's lo- lots to think about it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, like one reading of it, of course, is, you know, that, that, that you know, it's a lack of the class in motion that drives people into electoralism because there aren't, you can't go out and, like, be part of a, a, of a mass workers' movement. You can't go out and, you know, join the Gilles Jeunes, you know, on the streets of, of Brisbane or Sydney, you know. So that drives people in the direction of, of, of electoralism. But then equally, you would say that... Um, you know, when you look, looking overseas and you do see the successes of, in America, of progressive Democratic candidates like um, like AOC, um, if you're looking at UK and you're looking at, at, at Corbynism and, you know, the massive influx of people who joined, who joined there, you know, like you can see why it animates people and why it brings people in. And knowing a lot of these people, they're not under a lot of, and not under a great deal of mystification about the role of politics like these are people yeah. who are often political stuffers themselves yeah. <laughs> you know like they know how fucked it is um they come at it from a perspective that says you know that we can use these vehicles for progressive radical change right and they don't and you know like this is the thing for me like you know you need to have a relationship between electoralism and mass movements right but where are the mass movements which is, which is, which is a big question, right? Yeah. Like, and how do we relate to people in an absence of, of mass movements? And how do we talk to people? How do we get radical ideas out there into the mainstream, right? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things this is sparking, John. So, um, you know, like a friend, you know, uh, some, someone that I think is really, really great and really interesting is the uh, Brisbane councillor, Jonathan Sree. Mm-hmm. And if you think about like, his ex- like, and I'm seeing this from from a distance, and you know, like, hopefully, Jono will listen to the show and can give us his opinion. Um, mm. If you think about like his election, you know, and we did shows about him before he was our mate, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. You, you, if you think about what he was able to do with an election campaign, was he was able to like kind of in a specific geography, like articulate a kind of demographic experience linked to like a set of antagonisms around real estate development and the precarious conditions of young people capture that in a cultural expression win an election and then there was like a real attempt to engage in a number of kind of like mobilizations like real attempts to build a movement to kind of shut down some kind of developments and it went to the edge and i don't like it never moved into a form of activity that would be more confrontational. And I'm not saying this is like a mm. moral failure. It might have, might have not even been on the agenda. You mm. know, so since then, what you I've kind of seen from a distance is apart from having to be like a counsellor, like he's now kind of engaging in these other kind of experiments like around participatory budgeting and tr- like kind of opening mm. up some of those processes. And it's like, how do we... Like, that's really, like, obviously this is not going to abolish the value form. But, mm. you know, I mentioned Keir Milburn before. Um, yeah. He, I read an article that he wrote. and It's kind of an interesting article from him, like an article that he wrote with a, another writer's name, Forgets Me, and I'll put a link to it, where he was talking about, like, how do you have 
policy, institutional design that transforms people's subjectivities. Mm. Like because part of his argument was, well, you know, you know that that Maggie Thatcher quote about you know the object is to transform people's souls. Like mm. part of you know the effect of privatization, the commodification of everything is it transforms the lived rationality of how yeah. people experience their lives. It produces them subjectivity, like what their subjectivity is. So his idea mm. was, can you have these like um, not public-private partnerships, but public common partnerships? Mm, um, so yeah. you know the, these ways of organizing um, the reproduction of social life, partly driven by by policy that begins to transform, you know, democratize and decentralize. So people are involved in decision making in a way that transforms their subjectivities as part of an anti-capitalist strategy. Right? It's still very mm. policy driven for my, and it's funny, right? Because you know this is like mm. Keir can. Um, can correct me, but as far as I understand their trajectory, you know, they were in the English organisation Class War, um, mm. wrote, wrote p- partly wrote the um, 1997 final issue of Class War that wasn't really the final issue of Class War, but it's a fantastic <laughs> statement on um, on British anti-capitalism at the time. Um, it was then mm. in an organisation called the Free Association, like really radical anti-state kind of stuff that now is part of the Corbyn wave, as part of Plan mm. C, are beginning to toy with policy. And I, I would be interested to see what our listeners say about this. And mm. I kind of see this is similar to what Jono engages with, you know, like this year, this mm. year past, you know, um, you know, me and... Caroline and the kids went to like this event that he org- that his office had organised, which was like a, a kind of a party in the park mis- mixed with these kind of collaborative forms of, of um, participating in, in budget planning. Yeah, yeah. Totally yeah. constrained by the conditions of the moment, right? Totally constrained mm. by the conditions of the moment. But is this part of an experiment that begins to shift people's subjectivities? I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is, you know, like uh, I'm losing my final ultra-left cred in these moments. Yeah. Now, you, you said that we would disagree, but it seems, Dave, that we are floating closer together. Oh, that, that's, that's a worry. Well, it's, <laughs> it's very it's, worrying. It's very even worrying. like um, before Christmas, like I was chatting to online with, with Nick Southall and he was mm-hmm. joking. And this was when, you know, like there was just about to be the no confidence, um, there was about to be the no confidence um, motion against Theresa May and the yeah, yellow yeah. vests had just kicked off in France and he was like Corbyn PM and European flames by Christmas. Yeah. Right, and the, the thing that's so interesting about that is like, okay, like that isn't exactly what's happened, but like, both like I look at these, you know, like these different phenomena. You see this radical social democratic electoral projects, and then this insurrection in the street as well, with very open and very contradictory politics, and it's not clear how those two things relate to each other. In mm. fact, you know, like the kind of I guess the um, electoral left in France has been an uh, object... Well, I, like, it's maybe... Who knows what's really going on the ground, but from my mm-hmm. reading, has been just as rejected as um, any other kind of force. Maybe that is changing yeah, in time. Yeah. But, but like, but both of them also kind of hit a limit too, you know? Like, mm-hmm. after the Syriza experience, how confident are we that a social democratic government using the state can really transform things? No, no. But, and I think that's what Corbynism is trying to think around. And what you're, what you're mentioning, these exciting ideas of thinking about what can you do with a state that isn't a state. Mm-hmm. How can you move beyond the state? Would be move beyond that state form, you know, um, which is really, really interesting. And um, in thinking about that concretely. 
Yeah, but totally. Rather than just at, that, at an abstract level where we reject the state. Yeah. Entirely, right? And and I guess the other thing is with the with the yellow vest too. It's kind of like, well, what mm. happens next? You know, like. Yeah. I, I think part of the reason that you know that fascism. Um, seems or reactionary politics seems to have so much energy at the moment is mm. because of the limits. You know, like we had, you know, straight after the crisis, we have, you know, Occupy, the movements of the squares and, and whatever, mm-hmm. mobilise mm. these huge amounts of people on the ground, directly democratic. They seem to hit a point and dissipate and then the space is open, mm. you know, and it, it's like the the right to then moves in to that to that space so for me it's really interesting trying to like and um i was kind of thinking i think last year i think it was last year or maybe it was the end of last end of 2017 and 2018 mm. like i read um reinventing the future is it by srinacek and yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, um, yep. assembly by hart and negri and now yep. by the invisible committee and they're all kind of you know that so those books don't have it like the people in the Invisible Committee hate Antonio Negri, for example, but um, they were they were all attempting, I guess, to answer this problem. Like you know, we had we had the insurrections, we had the movement of the squares. Mm. What is the strategy that comes after that? And you know, Srinacek and Williams is like is Corbynism really? You know, mm. the Invisible Committee is like, well, we just have to fuck it all off. You know, and it's about like, how do you constitute the commune? Um, in radical hostility to all the structures and and heart and are a bit like oh well can we do both <laughs> you know like yeah yeah you yeah. know like electoral plans but um also engage in in um you know the, how does the mass movement engage with the state to 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 build genuine democracy and none of them really kind of solve it but it, that's really like if we were to think optimistically about what the problem of the present that's that's mm. our optimistic problems I mean like thinking about it. <clears throat> Like, as I, like, like thinking about this historically, I suppose, in terms of, you know, you've got Occupy that happens and, you know, you can't read the American radical wave without seeing Occupy as like a key moment in that. And then people disperse and reconstitute new places, whether it's in Jacobin magazine or whether it's in the rising of the massive rise of the DSA after 2016. Like, I don't think you can really draw, you can really say that, like in Australia, certainly, I don't think there's been any... I can't think of any way in which Occupy sort of germinated in interesting ways necessarily, but like there, I think there's there's those sorts of there are places where that kind of went. I suppose it didn't just peter out entirely; it went in new places and trying out new things. I suppose. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's mm. true. Like it'd be impossible mm. to think about that stuff without um, the Occupy wave. I think something mm. we should actually comment on. Mm. We're, that, we should, we're getting. We're getting close. It would be, over it, it would be a would be a miss not to talk about that was huge in two thousand and eighteen, and hopefully is huge in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. Yeah. Is um like is the Me Too phenomena and the mm-hmm. development of um of internationally of women's strikes. Uh, mm. There's a great article in Viewpoint by people here rustling of paper by uh, Chins. Uh, Chinzia Aruza, called From Women's mm. Strikes to a New Class Movement, The Third Feminist Wave. There's mm. also a real... And obviously there's heaps of re, heaps of interesting contradictions about this. So, you know, you have this mm. massive explosion of um, kind of, you know, 
public stories and mobilization mobilization in different forms around sexual violence um, mm-hmm. combined uh, and, and that takes a lot of online forms I think in the anglophone world but in other places in the world too this is combined with mass mobilizations with uh, strikes around social reproduction and we we had you know two shows with Tanya in 2018 talking about some of mm-hmm. the the, the mm-hmm. contradictions of me too but this this is it's a huge event right like it's it's where it's going to go like lots of different directions mm. that it might push but i think i can't see it it stopping in 2019 and you know like chinzia's argument is really that um you know this is the development of what the next wave of class politics looks like mm. that you know that if you think about the first wave of feminism and the second wave of feminism in the fir- like they both happened in the context of other kind of big social struggles so you know the development mm. of the original workers movement and the new left like yep. Shinzi's, Shinzi's argument is actually you no know, this is how class politics is reconstituting itself this yep. link between the sexual violence of capitalism the exploitation of women's labor and inequalities within the workplace and this is the the sharp point yeah that's one of the points i, I try to make in this piece coming out soon hopefully is you know that when women and colonized peoples joined the struggles of workers in the 1960s and 1970s, that's when that particular model of capital accumulation, that particular social model fell apart, is when the working class, if we want to understand it, was reconstituting in new ways. And it was the inability of capital or the mainstream of the left to deal with that. And we're still living in that aftermath, right? And Me Too is one of the outcomes of that. Me Too is one of the outcomes of this kind of post-women's liberation moment, right? And the continuing that reconstitution. That's really interesting. I need to read that article. Yeah, well, I'll link them to all. And, you know, like, mm. um, I think we've got, we've, got a, we've got a bunch of, like, sh- a couple of shows already recorded and, and more mm. to do this year. Mm. But, John, did you read any good books in 2018? Mate, I don't read books. I don't have time for that. Just between, write them. T- between Twitter and writing. <laughs> Jesus. Um, what did I read, actually? I'm trying to... Um, you go, I think. Okay, well, I, I think, you know, I, I read a number of, of really good books, but the the ones that I mm. think are probably, if the listeners haven't already picked them up, I think the first one would be uh, Assad Haider's Mistaken Identity, um, mm-hmm. mainly because, you know, the, the continual debate around identity and uh, identity, identity politics, class politics, all that kind of stuff. Um, without getting into that, I think Assad Haider's uh, book is a really great intervention in that debate that, that in a populist kind of way, arguing for um, the struggle the, the struggle against um, against racial oppression as a fundamental part of the development of a class movement. Um, I wrote a a thing for Flood Media, a small dossier which picks up on some of that debate. And the latest issue of Salvage um, also has an article by Saad Haider where he recapsulates his position in a number of theses that's really worth reading. Uh, the other book, I think, which is definitely the one that everyone should read, is a book called Hinterland by Philip mm. A. Neal. So this book really comes out of the post-Occupy US ultra-left commie tradition. Um, so I think there is a journal either... I think it's called Ultra. It's either Ultra or Prol that uh, Neil is associated with. And this book is kind of a long form. Um, so it's really interesting. Like part of it, part of it's interesting just in style. I like probably the term gonzo journalism is, in, is inappropriate, but it's not like a work of high theory, so to speak. This is the author kind of making an analysis of 
how contemporary capitalism works today, particularly focusing on the way the infrastructure um, creates a particular spatial relationship of capitalist politics that then produces all these kind of hinterland areas um, mm-hmm. and seeing them as a site of struggle. But it's very much written in a way that's like one foot in really serious theory, one foot in looking just through the author's lived experience, time in China, imprisonment for engaging in, in you know, street fighting. And it, I think for me it's so really relevant because part of what we need to do is think about that in Australia as well, about how is capitalism creating, like um, what is the spatial relationships that are going on in capitalism in Australia and where are these points of struggle like a, a comrade of Neil's um, came to Australia and we had a quick chat and they were like everywhere is hinterland in Australia mm. you know like beyond wow. yeah. outside of a few kind of small you know inner urban pockets the way that you know that and also like Neil took tries to explain the kind of material basis for fascism for, for this as well for mm. um, and I, I think you know for you know we did one show set out interviewing friends out in Ipswich in 2018. I really wish I could spend more time talking about some of the stuff that's gone on in um, in Ipswich around, you know, corruption and the building of the dump there and how this is playing mm. out. But, like, it, it's... Look, I'm not doing it justice, really read it, um, because I think it really shows the kind of writing and the kind of analysis that we need to have now, which actually propels me on one thing I want to did forget to talk about which is one of the really positive things in in 2018 was the development of um a self-organized struggle by people on welfare and in poverty around those conditions mm. and they're the friends and comrades who are really going out of the geographical bubbles of the left because they're areas where they live and uh, and other people live to organize you know, and I think we'll really try to uh, check in um, with that during the year to see how, yes. how that how that uh, continues. Probably tied in as well with the one real bright spot of like uh, struggle around work in Australia, which is RAFWU. So um, yeah, definitely yes. You know, and some of the stuff happening, you know, um, around um, around kind of. Uberized economy, gig economy stuff too. That's the other thing we should mention too, John. In 2018, a lot of people gave us a lot of money. Yes, <laughs> that's also true. Yes, to buy new new equipment, and we still owe people a bunch of sandwiches, lunches, and a couple more shows coming out of that too. So, um, yes, if we been, haven't forgotten you, lovely supporters. Hit us listeners. up. Hit us up and get your sandwich. Yes, definitely. If you're in Brisbane, do that. Yes. So, if you didn't read any books, John, did you read any great tweets? I, what, I, what I'm thinking about, though, is I really have, have read parts of and want to read more of Liz Humphrey's new book, On the Accord, which has just come out about um, the way that the particular, we talked about it a little bit in the show, and we have had Liz on in the past, but um, her book has just come out uh, with, uh, with Brill, I believe, um, and it is all about how Labour produced a particular type of neoliberalism in Australia, a consensual form of neoliberalism, a corporatist form of neoliberalism, if you might put it that way, that probably did that, that, that meant that the shocks of neoliberalism were less pronounced in Australia than they were in other places, but also now places the left, if we want to call them that, around the Labour Party in a very strange ideological framework. Yeah. I, so I think it's really important. Um, that's that's something to that, that I'm looking forward to reading in the new year. Totally, and like, 
and the Brill edition will be well expensive, but normally yes. historical materialism puts out a uh, cheaper version about a year later, right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, yes, yeah, I, I think... Fair. I think really, you know, Liz's work is just some of the most important stuff um, happening in Australia right now, partly because, you know, where we talked about, you know, my kind of objection to, I think, some of the mystifications about how the state can solve capitalism. You know, like, like you know, one of the th things that's really interesting thinking about is, you know, if you, we have the wave of struggles in the 60s and 70s that causes capital to go into crisis why didn't we abolish capitalism you know like <laughs> well, why was the part of this story then you know this is when the right launches a successful counterattack, and partly yeah. was because of, like a lot of the left could not see a world beyond full yeah. employment and keynesianism as the horizon and yep. looked around for strategies that were still within capital accumulation as capital went into crisis mm. a crisis that we had imposed on it you know, so yes. it's it's like I think that that story is important. Not just it's important to learn mm. the lesson of now too, right? Like um, that, it we need to have a bigger horizon. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of the reason that the the, the, part of the Communist Party and others went on that as well as the historical failings of of the twentieth century communism, and the fact that so many of them had had such had their hopes raised by the Prague Spring in 1968 by other forms of democratic communism and then had had them squandered, you know, and that made them meant that they couldn't, that they increasingly moved away from abandonment of capitalism is because of the, the, the failings of those movements, I think. But anyway, we... We, we should finish up. up. Yep. Stuff, stuff okay. we haven't talked about is Syria, Yemen, what happened yep. to the anti-war movement. That's probably worth... Yep. thinking about like yep. I, I gotta say like personally is like i have no fucking idea um yeah what what happened in in syria i think assad is probably you know the Ba'athist regime is probably shit um but yep. what the, one of the things that really interests me is like how a whole bunch of friends and comrades uh ha are supporters you know like this yeah. like the, the the anti-war movement has disappeared and yeah. it, it's fractured in really weird directions um mm -hmm. You know, like same in Yemen, these kind of things. Like that's really interesting that that in, that has gone on. Um, I imagine there will be lots of struggle this year around Adani. I'm not really yes. sure what the content of that is. Mm. Yes, no, I'm sticking to my long-term idea that Adani will never happen, but that is probably dependent on enough struggle happening here and enough financial institutions just telling them it's a horrible idea and they should stop, Yeah, um, which is... You know, a combination of that will probably win out in the end. This is my, this is this is this has been a positive thought bubble. <laughs> All right, anything to finish on, John? Oh no, mate, I need to go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Big car ride tomorrow. Definitely. All right. Well, um, yeah, you'll hear from us again yeah, soon, thanks, dear thanks listeners. For listening. So you know, like, tweet at us. Uh, yep. John is at John Pacini. I am at with Sober Senses. Um, we've got a bunch of more episodes um, in the works, and obviously, like we want to kind of keep the discussion going. Um, we like we're getting pretty good listenership. I think we missed mm. the benchmark for our twenty thousand or twenty five thousand downloads. So maybe we'll aim for something bigger when we hit thirty thousand downloads this year. Yeah, definitely. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. All right. All right. See you, John. Talk to you. Have a good Later. night, buddy. Bye. You too. Bye. Oh.
door was open, I was seething. Your mother burst in, it was freezing. She said, it looks like it's trying to rain. I was lost, I felt seasick. You convinced me that he left. You said, keep talking, but don't use any names. I scolded your driver and your brother. Good. 